0: Welcome to Syracuse University Talks Business, a collaborative podcast about the innovations, challenges, and opportunities in the modern business world and their impact on other industries. This podcast is produced by the Whitman School of Management at Syracuse University. The audio for this episode was recorded during the Vaccine Supply Chains webinar on February 16th, 2021. Today, we talk with Professor Barak Kazaz, Dr. Saram Adad, and Prashant Yadav about the state of the vaccine supply chain. In the past few months, more and more people are getting vaccinated. The Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, and other vaccines are making their way through the world in the hopes of returning to a pre-COVID-19 normality. Prashant Yadav is an INSEAD professor and a fellow of the Harvard Medical School and Center for Global Development. Prashant says that while it may seem like vaccines are being produced at a rapid pace, that isn't necessarily the reality.
1: Vaccine manufacturing, or all biologics manufacturing for that matter, is a fairly complex manufacturing process. And what we have to ensure is that what comes out uh, of each step is exactly the product for which we ran the clinical trial. And exactly is the word I want underscore here, which means the process becomes the product, exactly making the same thing consistently every time. And in doing so, there are lots of uh, process steps which become critical to monitor very closely, to have them running in a way that they are synchronized in the throughput with each other. I think the attention that very quickly goes to um, in our common narrative around capacity is, oh, which one is the bottleneck? Can we go and somehow fix the bottleneck and get more output? And in doing so, we keep going from, well, maybe if we add some filtration equipment, we'll get more filtration output. If we add some additional lipid, sor- lipid nanoparticle sources, we'll solve the the lipid nanoparticle constraint. But I think what that's doing is it's just uh, successively shifting the bottleneck from one to the other. And what we have to realize is that one, we have to be a little bit patient that you know, scaling up manufacturing capacity will take some time. Second, we have to take a system-wide view and say, if our goal is 2 billion doses in a year and the, the two billion figure that you described is an annual estimate i think we are slowly on the ramp up figure to get there uh, but currently the fires Pfizer BioNTech and Moderna are both operating at in you know, a much lower uh, weekly production schedule uh, so so that's one part then the other part is we have to ask the question how else can we increase manufacturing capacity what else can we do not just alleviating the bottleneck in the one production suit or the production side, but can we find alternative sites to start manufacturing? Not just the the nucleic acid vaccines, but a portfolio of vaccines. Um, and I think there the bigger questions come up as to where do we find more manufacturing capacity, and how do we make the manufacturing capacity to be more flexible? And by flexible, I mean the ability of a plant, whether it's at the fill and finish stage or at the drug substance manufacturing stage to make more than one type of a vaccine with limited time and resources required to reconfigure and having that capability of process flexibility is going to be important not just because of the uncertainty surrounding what will our optimal portfolio of vaccines look like four months from now we'll be asking the question we have four or perhaps even more vaccines to deploy as tools, uh, how will we use them effectively? And which may mean we want more of the nucleic acid ones, but we may also want some in some instances more of the protein subunit one or more of something else that comes our way. And so we need we need that flexibility for what comes our way in the future in terms of the tools that are best suited. The the starting premise is that the current manufacturing capacity is way way lower than what you would call as the socially optimal manufacturing capacity. And I'm talking about a global aggregate now, not just for the United States alone. Right? So why don't we have more manufacturing capacity? Well the companies who have been the vaccine sponsors or so those who have developed the vaccine um, are the ones who are bearing the risk of an uncertain future demand of the vaccine products they've developed. And when the demand is uncertain, they are solving the decision calculus that they are doing is uh, how much more manufacturing capacity should we set up given that maybe 18 months from now, the landscape of what vaccines will be used and what quantity may look very different. But society needs much more and society may be willing to take on a much higher risk than the manufacturers themselves.
0: One of these risks is the reliance on the vaccine's effectiveness. Both Pfizer and Moderna reported a 94% effectiveness, but this was in a lab setting. Dr. Syra Madad is the Senior Director of the System-Wide Pathogens Program at the New York City Health and Hospitals. She says lab results won't always be reciprocated in real life.
2: When you're seeing some of these studies come out and they're being done in a lab setting, it's very different than it playing out in the real world, right? So if you're seeing uh, the lab studies that are coming out and the neutralizing antibodies and the effect of these variants, it's very different playing out potentially in real life because we know that the immune system is so complex and it's not just antibodies. You know, There are so many different types of cells involved uh, in, in our immunity uh, in, You know, when it comes to COVID-19. So we would take that with a grain of salt, um, but again, we need a lot more information that is currently being produced. I think what the takeaway also is, not only are these vaccines still really good at preventing the severe outcomes, but you're also looking and seeing that these vaccine makers are looking at a plan B or contingency plan. So you're seeing them come out with strain specific boosters, or the next generation vaccines um, that can look at targeting multiple different variants, so that's certainly being studied and in the pipeline, so that's really good news. How we look at the effectiveness of the
0: vaccine depends on the context we're evaluating it in. There are a number of different terminologies related to COVID-19 and the ailments it can cause.
2: When you look at the COVID-19 vaccines, these are not a yes or no or on and off in terms of do they work, do they not work. And the reason why I say that is because when we look at the actual virus and the disease that it causes, there's a difference between infection. There's a difference between disease and severe disease. And when you look at COVID-19, you look at the full spectrum of illness that it causes, and this can include mild, moderate, severe, and it can also, uh, you know, pose fatal, and then you have individuals that fall in under the asymptomatic category. So there's a, there's a big difference between all those different terms, along with who falls under the mild, moderate, and severe. And when we talk about these COVID-19 vaccines, I think just very bluntly, You know, um, even if they're taking a hit in terms of their efficacy because of these variants, they still um, appear to protect us against the most severe outcomes in terms of severe disease, hospitalization, and death. And that's what we are right now uh, certainly most concerned about.
0: Here in upstate New York, the New York State Fairgrounds is one of the most popular places to get vaccinated. It's where I received my vaccine. The fairgrounds only distribute the Pfizer vaccine. Barack Kazaz is a professor of supply chain management at the Whitman School of Management and the director for the Brethen Operations Management Institute. He explains exactly how the Pfizer vaccine is produced.
3: In the case of uh, Pfizer, for example, the first task that you see is that the Chesterfield facility in Missouri is going to be producing the DNA uh, or replicating the DNA of the virus. Then that's gonna get snipped and uh, we're gonna get a RNA uh, produced in Andover, uh, Massachusetts uh, facility. All of that is shipped to a third facility called Kalamazoo, Michigan, that basically quotes um, the mRNA, messenger RNA. And we call that fill and finish operations. We also have a distribution center located in Wisconsin. And in the case of Pfizer, we're shipping them directly from these two facilities into different sites. And that's typically using either UPS or FedEx uh, to get to uh, the different uh, vaccination sites. We have to be cognizant of the fact that uh, the vaccine needs to be in cold, in fact, freezing temperatures. And for that Pfizer was kind enough to develop a packaging environment where you can actually have five different pizza box type of uh, loads that would contain 975 um, uh, vials of uh, the vaccine. And in each vial, it used to be only five doses. Now it's uh, six doses. Um, But these payloads would go into an inner box. And inside that big box, which is the outer box, we would be using... um, uh, ice in order to keep that. So this is a freezer facility that Pfizer is using uh, in order to keep those payloads. And then they are getting into uh, the boxes that I described here. Obviously, the temperatures that we need to keep the vaccines is very, very cold, minus 70 centigrade or minus 94 Fahrenheit. And that makes it the logistics of this quite complex and, uh, and, and Uh, Important. Now, how challenging is that? Almost all of the vaccines require a cold uh, shipment uh, environment. In fact, if you look at other vaccines that are being developed for COVID-19, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, they also require colder temperatures, Moderna minus 20. Uh, But we have been doing that for livestock vaccines and other components. Obviously, in the South Pole, the temperature is only minus 50. And in the case of Pfizer, we're going below those temperatures as well.
0: So what happens when people do become vaccinated? At what point are enough people vaccinated so that we can begin to return to normal? People
2: are calling this stage herd immunity. This is obviously another really hot topic. Um, Right now, what you're seeing um, being discussed is the threshold is anywhere between 60 to 90 percent. Um, you know, and that's the proportion of people who need to have immunity either from vaccination or from, you know, um, from natural uh, infection. But I think it's also important to understand that herd immunity is not really in a vacuum. It's not just, you know, getting to that threshold. And there's multiple different factors here at play that influence herd immunity. You have to take into account people that can't get vaccinated, people that won't get vaccinated, and people that just don't have access to to getting uh, the the COVID-19 vaccine, whether it's here in the United States, or even globally, so this discussion and, and this thought of herd immunity is, and the threshold of it, you know, is something that we certainly need further discussion on. But I think that when we look at, can we start loosening restrictions? Can we go back to a life of pre-pandemic? Once we start looking and seeing that hospitalizations and deaths have significantly decreased, you have low amounts of community transmission you will start seeing some loosening of certain restrictions. And this may be individuals that are vaccinated and what they can do with other vaccinated individuals. So I think it's important to paint that picture to the general public to have some, some sense of hope and optimism. Because again, this herd immunity threshold, um, there's going to be some bottlenecks in it. You know, And as I mentioned, it, not only those that can get vaccinated, but you're also seeing you know, about 50% of the population stating that they don't want to get vaccinated. That's going to be factored into reaching that threshold. Um, And then obviously children and having a vaccine available for them. So these are all the different types of, uh, you know, high level variables to to take into account. While the fight against COVID-19 isn't
0: over, the rate at which people are receiving vaccines is certainly a sign of hope. Thank you to Professor Barak Kazaz, Dr. Sarah Madad and Professor Prashant Yadav for their time and expertise. This has been Syracuse University Talks Business. I'm Olivia Conti, and I'll talk to you soon.